There were a group of young people, visual artists, who felt that God was calling them to go into a Muslim country and share something of God's love. Now, how do you go in to a Muslim country and share that without being locked up or maybe even stoned to death? But they really felt they were to go, and as they prayed, they said, Lord, show us what we're to do. And the Lord directed them to Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And so they felt that they were to paint and draw doors. Doesn't sound terribly spiritual, but that's what they felt like God spoke to them. And so they went to this particular Muslim nation, and they began to look around at the doors, and they chose which ones they wanted to do, and the idea was at the end of their time, they would go into the local marketplace, and they would exhibit their work. Well, one of the young artists was having a tough time, and she went back to the Lord and said, Lord, why am I struggling with this assignment so much? And she felt like the Lord spoke to her and said, I want you to focus on the lock, on the keyhole. And so she went and she began to do her work, and as she came to paint the keyhole, she made it central to her painting, and she painted as if you were looking through the keyhole, and she painted a corridor, and down at the end of the corridor was a door that was slightly ajar, and coming out of the door was light, and when she finished, she said, Lord, how on earth are you going to use this? And they went out and they put up their paintings and the local people came and they began to look and dialogue with some of the artists. And she looked over and she saw a, an old Muslim man and he was staring intently at her painting. And as she looked closely, she saw the tears begin to stream down his face. And so she grabbed an interpreter and she went over to him and she said, Sir, I see that my painting is moving you. Can you tell me, what is it that you're seeing? And this old Muslim man said, you have painted my life. All of my life, I've searched for the light and never been able to find it. There's always been a door that's blocked my way, and I've never been able to find the key. If you are the author, the painter of this artwork, please tell me how I can find the key to open the door so that I can find the light. And right there, she began telling him about Jesus, who is the light of the world. You know, there are another group of artists, this time musicians, the Bible actually introduces us to them. And these musicians, these artists, actually went to another country as well. The problem is they didn't have a very great experience. In fact, they wanted to come home so badly. They refused to perform. And they even laid aside their musical instruments. And, and just all they could think about was going home. Let's have a look at the scripture. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? 
Who were these artists? Well, they were part of God's people who had previously lived in Jerusalem, but because of the idolatry of God's people, God had allowed Nebuchadnezzar's army to come down and to lay siege of Jerusalem and destroy the temple and destroy the walls and drag the people of God to Babylon, modern-day Iraq, as captives, as exiles. And here we see them there. Uh, They refuse to play music for their captors. They just want to go home. They're struggling. You know, for me, this is a picture of the church and the arts throughout history. At some times, the church has embraced the arts. Other times, we've rejected them as sinful and broken and idolatrous. And because of that, many churches have not embraced the imagination and creativity, either within their worship times or in their lives as individuals or in reaching out to others with the good news of the gospel. And because of that, so many artists within our churches have felt in exile. They felt that there was not a place for them. Because you see, the church didn't understand their gift and the world didn't understand their faith. And many of them came to Christ. They were already working in the arts. And they were told, hey, you're now a Christian. The arts are not compatible with Christianity. You need to give up what you're doing and doing something spiritual for God. And so they gave up their gifts and they began to um, do other things. Others in the church said, if you don't understand my gift, if you don't make room for my gift, then I'm out of here. I'm leaving the church. And so they've left, and today many of them are not walking with God. And I meet them all over the world, and many of them are wounded. They are very um, hurtful in terms of the things they say about the church. They don't have anything good to say. Tragic, tragic. How could this happen? How could God's gifts come to a place where we, as Christians, don't receive them? Don't respect them. Don't develop them. Don't use them for his honor and glory. There was a time when the church led the way. We go back to the Middle Ages. You know, it started off reading scripture in church, and then the scripture became dramatized. And then they began to put actors together who would act out the Bible stories. And then they took it out of the church into the marketplace, and they would perform the stories of Scripture. They called them miracle plays or or mystery plays. And then they would go from city to city telling the stories of the Scripture through reenactment. And through the ages, we've had believers who have created amazing architecture, great cathedrals, and they did it to the glory of God. And in those cathedrals, they put stained glass windows of stories from the Bible because in those days, many of the people couldn't um, couldn't read. They were very often spiritually illiterate. And so they created these beautiful stained glass windows to help educate, to help teach people the stories of God. And today, of course, we can go to the museum and the concert hall and we can see great paintings and we can listen to great music. which were done by Christians years ago all to the glory of God. Look at Johann Sebastian Bach, a man who loved God with all of his heart, and every time he finished a new score, he would write at the end of it, soli, Deo, Gloria, soli, to the glory of God. But in the Reformation time, what happened 
was that the reformers had seen clearly that the visual, the artistic, had to a large extent become idolatrous. People weren't worshiping God, they were worshiping the art, they were worshiping the sculpture. And so the reformers, they destroyed much of the artwork that existed, that had been created in the church. And they were right to do so. The problem is, what happened was we threw the baby, as we say in England, out with the bathwater. And we became in the Western church, we became people of the word. And we built our churches, and the pulpit was always in the middle and the central part of the church, just to emphasize, we weren't people of the image. We weren't people of the visual. We were people of the word. Thank God for the word. Jesus was the word of God. But you know, Jesus was also the image. It says he was the image of the invisible God. In Jesus, word and image come together. And we need to recover what has been lost. And the exciting thing for me is this, that as we look at this verse, these artists struggling, longing to go home, there was a time when God said to him, them, your time is up. I'm taking you home. You're going back to Jerusalem. You're going back to where you belong, where I created you to be. And I believe today that is what's happening in this area of imagination and creativity. Around the world today, the Spirit of God is speaking to individuals and saying, I have given you a gift, and I want you to take that gift, and I want you to develop it, and I want you to use those creative gifts for my glory. Churches now are beginning to embrace more and more creative worship, where when they come together, they celebrate the goodness and the gifts of God through creative expressions as they bring all that they are into that place of worship. Look at the mission organizations. I work with many of the major mission organizations around the world. And today they have one question. How can we be more creative? How can we use our imagination uh, in, a, in a better way to reach out to a world that is so arch-driven? It's, it's so communication-driven. It, it's so imaginatively driven. How do we reach this generation? And I want to tell you there's a reason why we're losing much of this generation. It's because we're not speaking their language. Today, the language of our culture is the language of the imagination. It's the language of the arts. And so often, because we won't engage those areas, those good gifts from God, young people don't want to be a part of it. They don't understand. It's not the way they communicate. And there are those who are called to the marketplace, the culture. And sometimes they're criticized. Well, why don't you do something for God? Like, you know, do something in the church. And they would respond and say, I am doing something for God. God's called me to take my gift into the culture, into the marketplace. I know it's distorted. I know there's much brokenness in the arts world. But God has called me to go into that world and to bring his hope, to bring his joy, to bring his story, so that that world may begin to change and reflect something of who God is. And they're in the marketplace and they need our prayers. Do you know when God communicates with us? 75% of the Bible is made up of stories. 75%. 
15% of the way God communicated to us in Scripture is poetry. Only 10% of the Bible is actual teaching, like I'm doing right now. Didactic, propositional, instruction. 90% of the Bible appeals to the imagination through stories and poetry. And what have we done as the Church of Christ today? We have reversed that pattern as we retell that story. So today, 90% of the way we retell the story is instructional. Maybe 10% appeals to the imagination. This is not the biblical pattern. And we, re- we need to return to that. I don't know whether, how much you know about the influence of the arts today, but the arts are literally um, shaping our culture globally in unprecedented ways. As Christians, we're called to fulfill the Great Commission, to go into all the world and disciple nations. The people that are discipling the nations today are the artists and the entertainment industry. And much of it is broken. And so wrong understandings and wrong values are being perpetuated. So how do we move forward? Does God give us a mandate? I mean, seriously, is God interested in the arts and the imagination? I mean, surely God's got better things to think about. There's a world that's broken and dying out there. Well, let's go to Scripture because anything that we want to live our lives by needs to be rooted and based in Scripture. So let's go to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I love this. The first book of the Bible, the first verse of the first chapter of the Bible introduces God to us. Now, God is faithful. God is just. God is Jehovah Jireh, our provider. He could have used any of his attributes and his nature and his character to introduce himself to us, but how does he self-introduce himself? I want to tell you, says God, I'm an artist. I'm the creator. I imagined it up. I spoke it into existence. I created the world. And as I look at God's world, I see color, design, texture, beauty, movement, rhythm. It's audiovisual. It's full of visual and audio aspects. It touches all of our senses. And we read that God's art was excellent. When he'd finished each day, he looked at what he had created, and he said, it is good. And at the end of the time of creation, he looked at all that he had made, and he said, it is very good. God declared his artistry to be excellent. But it doesn't end there. As we turn to Genesis 1.27, we read this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Made in the image of God. We call it the Imago Dei, the image of God. And theologians have discussed for centuries, what does that mean in all of its fullness? But one of the things we know for sure is the image of God in each one of us is that we are able to imagine, we are able to be creative in 
some measure like the God who created us and who created the world. And I want to tell you this morning, creativity is not the sole domain of the artist. I guarantee there are people here this morning who have said to yourself and have said to others, I don't have a creative bone in my body. I want to tell you, you're completely wrong. Because based on the word of God, I can tell you for a fact that you are creative. You may not have developed it. You may not have recognized it. You may not have felt that it was important. But I want to tell you, you're made in the image of the artist God, and you are creative. It's part of who we are. It's part of who God created us to be. So as the children struggle to define imagination, the dictionary tells us that it's the ability to form mental images that are not present to the senses. We talk about our mind's eye. I saw it in my mind's eye. Well, we know our mind doesn't have an eye. What we mean is, in my imagination, I saw it. Warren Wiersbe, biblical scholar, pastor, describes the imagination as this. It is the image-making faculty in your mind, the picture gallery in which you are constantly painting, sculpting, and designing. Did you know that every time you imagine lying on the beach during this miserable winter, you were painting a picture? I actually saw myself lying on a beach, bathing in the sun, but I never actually acted on it, so I never got to experience it. But that's the imagination. We paint, we sculpt, we design, and it's happening constantly, every moment of the day. Without imagination, have you ever thought about a world where you would live with no imagination. If we didn't have the gift of imagination, we could never think beyond this very moment. If we were sick this morning, we could never imagine a day when we would be well. If we didn't have imagination, we would have no hope because we couldn't imagine hope. And if we can't imagine hope, we can't imagine faith because faith is built on hope. And so even our very faith has its roots in the imagination, the ability to imagine. I was brought up in London, England, in a Christian family, very strict. The arts were sinful, worldly, not something that a young man, a Christian young man, would ever engage in. So I didn't. I saw my first movie at 19 years of age, my big act of rebellion on the way to university. You know what? I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy it for a second. Because all the way through the movie, all I could think about was, what if Jesus comes back and finds me watching a movie? That's how I'd been brought up. I didn't know what would happen, but it never sounded good, so I'd never done it until that moment. And this was 1965. London, England, so creative. You know, the rock music, the Beatles, Help album was in the charts. I went to university, and I met a young man who told me that he was a Christian, and he had a Christian rock band. And I'm saying, what? (laughs) A Christian what band? A Christian rock band. And he said, you know what? We have a concert this weekend. I'm I'm really struggling because my drummer's sick. You don't play the drums, do you? (laughs) I said, no, sorry about that. And when we finished the conversation, he said, I've got to ask you again. Please, would you be willing to try? So I said, okay, I'm willing to try like flying to the moon for me. We spent three days in the basement rehearsing, 
And at that weekend, I was in my first rock concert. I had hair in those days that I, I was a move it around. <laughs> but I began to realize, and actually I stayed with that band for seven years as we toured through, through Great, Great Britain. I was beginning to realize that God had given me gifts, creative gifts, but my church had never encouraged it. My, my home had certainly never encouraged it. My school had never encouraged it. Now I was beginning to discover that God had invested things in me that I was totally unaware of before. Let's turn to Genesis 2.9. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. You ever notice that verse? There's utility there. Because God made food, trees that were good for food, right? Function. We need food. If we don't have food, we die. But God chose to make those trees not only good for food, but what? Beautiful to look at. Why would God do that? Well, first of all, God's an artist. Beauty is a part of who he is. But he made you and I in his image. Why would God put trees in our world that were beautiful if he didn't give us the ability to appreciate beauty. He did. We need food, but we also need beauty. I have a friend who has run refugee camps around the world with tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of refugees in terrible conditions, a total lack of humanity. You know what he said to me? He said, we found one way to rehumanize, if you will, these people. We bring flowers into the refugee camps. And he said, from the moment we brought flowers in, we just saw people change and, and, and respond. We were created to express beauty, but also to receive beauty. It needs to be accepted in our lives. It feeds our soul and our spirit. Let's move on to Exodus 31. See, I have called by name Bazalel. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs. And in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill. What's happening here? Moses is up on the mountain. He's talking to God. God is giving him the Ten Commandments. And in the middle of the Ten Commandments, God says to Moses, by the way, Moses, I've called an artist. I've called him by name. His name is Bazalel. And I have a specific task for him and those I've called to work with him. But first of all, Moses, I have filled him with my spirit. In the Old Testament, when you uh, were commissioned by God uh, for a task, you were given the Spirit of God to enable you to do it. And here God says, as I'm filling him with my spirit, I'm giving him wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, and I'm going to give him ability in all types of craftsmanship and artistry. Why is God doing this? Why is he filling him with the Spirit, giving him all these gifts and giving him skill to do what great spiritual enterprise? What does it say? To make artistic designs for the glory of God. You see, we can be called as an artist. 
And so many artists that I know as Christians struggle with this. God, why didn't you give me a more spiritual gift? Make me a preacher, a teacher, a missionary. Why, why, why give me the gift of art and imagination? And you know what? What we say to God is, God, if you gave me that gift, then you have a purpose for that gift. And the best way we thank God is to say, Lord, thank you for that gift. Lord, now I want to develop it. And will you show me how I can use it for your honor and for your glory? The most spiritual thing that any of us can be doing is to take the gifts that God has given us and to use them for his glory and for his purposes. And if you have skill, if you are skillful, guess who put it there? God says, I have put skill. Numbers 21 takes us to another part of the Bible. And then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and he put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. What's happening here? The children of Israel are in the wilderness. They're almost at the promised land. And now they start to grumble again about the manna burgers. Manna burgers for breakfast. Manna burgers for lunch. Manna burgers for supper. But you see, it really wasn't an issue of their stomachs. It was an attitude of their hearts. They were rebelling against God, even accusing God that he brought them out into the desert to kill them. And so God takes his hand of protection off of them. And he allows those snakes to bite the children of Israel. And they get, they get sick and many of them die. And so they come to Moses and plead. And Moses goes to God and pleads on behalf of the people. And what does God say? Moses, make a work of art. Make a sculpture. You see the real snakes there? I want you to make a replica. I want you to make a work of art, a sculpture, in the likeness of the real thing. And I want you to put it up on a pole. And anyone who looks at it will be healed, forgiven, restored. And so what does Moses do? He gets bronze and he crafts this bronze serpent. And when he's finished making it, he puts it on the pole. And those who looked see they're healed and forgiven and restored back into relationship with God. Was it the art that brought the healing? No, of course not. But God used it. Here God is using visual art. He's using non-verbal communication in the desert to speak healing and blessing and restoration to his people. And God is still doing it today around the world through the visual arts and through visual communication. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 4. Now, son of man, take a clay tablet, put it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and you shall besiege it. God literally commissions a play, a drama. He tells Ezekiel exactly about the props. If you read further into that chapter, you'll see there were a ton of props that he had to make, backcloth that he had to uh, draw, the city of Jerusalem. And then God said, now, every day, Ezekiel, I want you to act that out. I want you to enact besieging the city. And so Ezekiel would go and he would use all the props he had and he would fight against the city. He'd actually live out and dramatize this war epic as people watched. God was, of course, speaking. 
about the, about the exile that was about to come, about Jerusalem that was going to be besieged by Nebuchadnezzar's army. Another time, God told him, leave your house and walk around all day long, have all of your belongings with you, and at night, mime digging through the wall. Why did God ask him to do that? Because he was not telling this time. He was actually showing his people what would happen. There was going to be a time, if they didn't repent, that they were going to be in exile, going from place to place. There was another time when Ezekiel was told to eat his food and drink his water. And in the, in the view of everybody, as he did that, he was to shake. Why? Because God wanted to show his people that they would be in a place of fear when Nebuchadnezzar's army would come to destroy them. And we look at the other prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Elisha, all of them have and express what I call the street theater of the prophets. And again, I've been personally involved in street theater and performance in over 70 nations of the world. I have seen God powerfully use dramatic representations of truth to bring people to himself. Psalm 150, praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with the tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and the flutes. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Hey, we have a full orchestra here, right? Brass, strings, percussion, winds. God says, when you come to worship me, worship me with everything that you are, everything that I have created you to be. Sing, music. And then there's that D word in there, a word was, which was banned in my house growing up. Dance. Dance. Christians don't dance, right? How tragic that we have allowed the enemy to take gifts of God and destroy them rather than realizing that we need to reclaim them for the glory of God. I was asked to do a series of lectures at a Christian university a couple of months ago, and I discovered that all of the students there, and there's 13,000 living on campus, every one of them is allowed to bring a loaded gun into the classes. I was shocked. But they have to sign a form that says they'll never dance. Is that crazy or what? Dance is banned, but loaded guns in the classroom? Apparently, that's okay. I've been going to China for many years, since 1982. And one of the things that I've wanted to do there for a long time is to do Handel's Messiah. I love that work of the life and death and resurrection of Christ. It hadn't been done in China for, I don't know, 60 or more years because the communists would never allow it. But I was invited by the communist government, and that's another story for another time. But I saw the opportunity to do Handel's Messiah. And so I got the words of Messiah, which are right out of Scripture. I had them translated into Chinese, put them into the computer so that during the performance, the words of Scripture could be scrolled in Chinese. I picked the best orchestra in the south of China. I asked Howard Dick, who some of you probably will remember from the CBC, um, to come with his choir and to sing Messiah. And I chose visual uh, other artists um, from Europe, from North America, and from China to do the solo parts. What an amazing thing that happened. I was there. The orchestra had never played it before until we taught them. 
The audience had never heard it before. And yet as they looked at the words of scripture and heard the music, I didn't see one person that wasn't weeping. The next day, the newspaper that went out in communist China to 40 million people, the headline was, Messiah touches hearts. How do you do that? If we had taken the book of Isaiah and read it on the street or shared it, we'd have been put on the first plane home. But because it was the arts, it broke cultural, religious, and political barriers and went straight to the heart of people who needed to hear the story of God's love. The last verse I want to share with you this morning is Matthew 13, 34. Jesus spoke all of these things to the crowd in parables. He said nothing to them without using a parable. People came to Jesus, Lord, give us the words of eternal life. And what did he do? He told them stories. Stories that captured their imagination. He used metaphors. And to, to understand a metaphor, you have to be able to use your imagination. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. How does that work? Kingdom of God, mustard seed. The only way it works is imagination. Imagination makes the connection. Jesus was always appealing to the thinking and the imagination of the people that he taught, and he taught everything through story. I love this 11th century Jewish teaching story that I want to read to you. It's very short, and it goes like this. Truth, naked and cold, had been turned away from every door in the village. Her nakedness frightened the people. When Parable found her, she was huddled in a corner, shivering and hungry. Taking pity on her, Parable gathered her up and took her home. There, she dressed truth in story, warmed her, and sent her out again. Clothed in story, truth knocked again at the villager's door and was readily welcomed into the people's houses. They invited her to eat at their table and warm herself by their fire. That's what Jesus did. He wrapped truth in story. And we can wrap truth in drama, in music, in visual art, and in any number of creative ways in order to reach people who need to understand and receive God's message. I'm almost finished, but before I finish, I want to tell you one more story. It's about a friend of mine who lives in Malmo, Sweden. And during the communist era, he was invited to go to Latvia to exhibit his work. And so first of all, he decided, well, before I do anything creative, I want to go live with them for a while. I want to understand what they're struggling with. I want to understand their questions. And so he went and he lived with them, and he went back to his studio in Malmo, and he said, God, would you help me? Would you help me create things that are going to speak to these people who are hurting so much right now? And there was one piece that I'm going to show you in just a moment, that when everybody saw it in Latvia, they just wept and wept. So are you ready? Do you have your tissues? Okay, I've given you warning. All right, let's have a look at what it was. Anybody weeping yet? You know, the Latvians wept. You might look at that and say, well, what is that? A bit of modern art? Maybe your response might be, well, my kids could do that. 
But I want to tell you when the Latvians saw that, they wept because this was their story. Because you see, the colors on the bottom, those bars of color, they are, literally are the flags of the Baltic nations. So they, they saw their flag there. So instantly they knew, this is about us. And then they looked at the red on the top. Well, they knew what that was because there was only one color that the communists used and kept for themselves, and it was the color red. And so when they looked at that, they immediately knew, this is our situation. Communism is pressing down upon us and trying to destroy us. Now, they wouldn't, for a million years, have ever imagined there might come a day when the communists might not be in their country. Probably hadn't occurred to them. They were so under communism. But my friend Jan Eric has, and we look at it in the second one, he created this artwork in such a way that the top part could be removed. And what was he saying when he did that? He was saying to the Latvian people, very brave and courageous thing to do. He was saying, one day you will be free. One day communism will be toppled and you will be free. He brought hope. So their weeping was recognizing their condition, but also understanding the fact that there was hope now. There was hope. And then as the situation went on in the country, nine months later, communism was gone. They were free nine months later, and there was a big debate in the country. What do we do with the communists? Do we beat them, imprison them, torture them like they did for us, or do we forgive them? And there was a big national debate, and on the editorial of one of the top magazines in the country, on the first page, was this next painting of Jan Eriks, one that he also felt that God had spoken to him to do. It's 70 times 7. It's about forgiveness. How many times do we forgive? Seven? Jesus says, no, 70 times 7. And underneath it, the editor in Latvia had written, is there a limit to forgiveness? His artwork informed a nation about forgiveness. Now, we might not have the ability to impact nations or to sing like Brian today, but every one of us is created in the image of God, and we have the ability to develop that creativity. As we go into worship, which we want to use as a response this morning, let me ask you, for those of you who are creatively gifted, maybe some of you call yourselves artists or emerging artists or creatives, I want this morning as we sing this worship song, would you, would you thank God afresh for your gifts because, you know, he's the one who gave them to you? And would you rededicate them afresh to the Lord and say, Lord, would you take my gift? And would you use it for your glory, whether it's within the church or outside the walls of the church? Would you use it for your glory? I'm sure there are some of you here this morning, too, who look back on your lives at a time when you were creative. There were things you used to do, but for some reason, life crowded them out. Or maybe you didn't feel that they were valuable, or you didn't feel that you could give time to them. Ask the Lord this morning if you're to pick those gifts up, if you're to take them afresh and recognize them as good gifts from Him to be developed and used to nurture you and the body of Christ and the world beyond. There may be those this morning who have been wounded by the church. Maybe you're an artist, but churches you've been to have wounded you because they rejected your art, didn't allow it to be used or didn't respect it, and you were hurt by that. I want to encourage you as we sing this worship song, would you come to the cross this morning?
Would you bring your pain and your hurt and leave it there and experience his love and affirmation? And finally, for those who have said and maybe still are saying, I'm not creative. Would you during this time ask the Lord to show you, to show you the creative gifts he's placed within you? And as he does, would you then develop them and would you use them and would you say, God, would you take these gifts and make them a blessing to others, to those who've never heard, but particularly to you, Lord, as I give back the gifts that you've given to me. Will you stand with us?